Well, good morning. Uh, today we have the privilege of continuing to study the detailed vision uh, for the local church that Paul lays out for us in Romans. Uh, if you would please turn to Romans 13. Ah, I do have slides. You don't, don't look at that yet. There you go. Uh, if you go and turn to Romans 13, uh, or page 948 in the Pew Bible, uh, that would be good. Uh, while you're finding the right spot, I'd like to take time to uh, formally express my gratitude to Christ First Church for allowing me to preach four sermons over the course of my internship. Uh, I'll still be here in April, uh, but this is to be my last sermon. Uh, and I'm aware that a man in his early 20s with no seminary education is not exactly the model that we have in our minds for the ideal preacher. Uh, yet, you have graciously sat through my technical sermons and have even offered encouragement. Uh, last week, we discussed how the church is to contribute to the needs of the saints, and I am grateful for the contribution of this church um, that you've given me by means of the opportunity to preach. I thank God for your generosity. As we approach today's text, recall that Paul has been giving instructions for how local churches are to live. Uh, last week, we saw how members are to interact with each other and with unbelievers. Uh, this week, we'll see how the church is to interact with the government. So Romans 13, starting in verse 1, hear now the word of God. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Now, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Of course, it is the Spirit of God who gives understanding to men, so let us first ask a blessing for the study of his word. Uh, dear Father, uh, we thank you that we can come before you, um, that, that your local church can meet, um, and that we have the privilege to uh, not merely to read your word uh, and to meditate on it, but that we can do so openly. Um, Father, I ask that, that if we land anything today, I guess if I land anything today, <laughs> um, that is not of you, that, that no one here would be led astray by it. Uh, that they would quickly see that, uh, that it is an error and that I would be led uh, to uh, repent. Um, but Father, I ask that if there is anything today that glorifies you, if there's anything that causes our hearts and our minds to be set on the things that are above, that, that, you, would, um, that you would bless the, the reading and the preaching and the meditation of your word, um, that it might be a means by which uh, we can see you for, for who you truly are and live as you, you have called your church to live. Um, Father, you know that, that I personally, uh, especially today, do not feel at all adequate to this, so I ask that, um, that I would decrease, that you may increase. Um, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. It was in the mid-1800s that a group of Americans decided to take a trip to England. 
Uh, when other friends heard of these plans, they asked the travelers to listen to the two prominent English preachers of the day and report back which one was truly the best. Of course, at the time, if you wanted to hear a pastor with a stellar reputation for preaching, uh, you would have to go hear him in person. Uh, you couldn't go download one of his sermons online because dial-up internet was useless before Alexander Graham Bell uh, came along and invented the telephone. Yeah, some of you don't know what dial-up is. <laughs> so these friends decided uh, they would go listen to the preachers Joseph Parker and Charles Spurgeon and send word back as to who was the best one. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, of course, has a reputation for being one of the best English-speaking preachers, and I'll be honest, I had not even heard of Joseph Parker before this story was told to me. Um, but evidently, he was a very good preacher. Uh, for uh, the Sunday morning that the friends happened to go to his church, uh, they, they were astounded by what they heard. After the service, they staggered out of the church, still in a sort of hushed awe. Then finally, uh, one of the friends expressed their opinion, saying, Let it be said, there can be no doubt, but that Joseph Parker is the best preacher that ever there was. And for a time, this group of Americans even considered just skipping Spurgeon's service altogether, as there could be no contest. But eventually, they decided they, they ought to go and hear him preach nonetheless. And, and after Spurgeon's service, the group of friends once more sort of staggered out of the church in a sort of hushed awe, until finally one expressed what they were all were thinking. Now, let it be said, there can be no doubt but that Jesus Christ is the greatest one that ever there was. And I tell the story because I, I want us to remember from the beginning of the sermon that, that the church exists to behold to rejoice in and to magnify God's glory. It's, it's not about uh, men, as we will see soon. Uh, so I want to encourage you to make an, eff an extra effort this morning to see in the text how the church can glorify God. Uh, I say this because it is incredibly easy to read a passage that mentions something we have an opinion on and try to find in the passage a justification for our own opinion. Uh, today's passage is about government and everyone has an opinion on government. Uh, if you approach this text with an aim to glorify your position, uh, your party, or your country, you will miss what God is saying to his church. So wherever you fit on the spectrum from completely disinterested in government to completely obsessed with it, remember that this passage isn't about elevating anything pertaining to man. It is about elevating our opinion of God. Um, as is my custom, I'll, I'll be leading the study one verse at a time. Uh, but I'll go ahead and, and foreshadow what I believe to be the thesis of the passage. It is that the name of God is glorified when his church respects the authority he has given to man. Uh, as we look at these seven verses, we'll see that Paul breaks this next section down into three main sections. The origins of government, the purpose of government, and a God's people showing honor. So let's begin by looking at verse 1. Uh, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The first observation we should make is that the first sentence is a command. Uh, when you and I use the word let, we typically mean allow, like let your sister play with the toy. Uh, but Paul doesn't mean we should allow everyone to be subject to rulers. Uh, instead, he means that we should be. Uh, perhaps a more helpful translation would be from the New American Standard Bible, which says uh, every person is to be in subjection 
to the governing authorities. Now, the sentence, I'm aware, is not the sort that anyone particularly wants to be in the Bible, except, of course, for the governing authorities. Uh, we all like the idea that we don't have to obey anyone, that we, or our families, are self-sufficient, and that we can go out and make what we like of ourselves. If you find yourself tending toward these desires, you certainly aren't alone. Uh, you may recall that when Jesus came, many Jewish people were excited about him because they were living under the Roman government and thought that a king had finally come to overthrow the Roman oppressors and set Israel free. And you can imagine that Jesus might make a Roman official nervous. He was always talking about his own kingdom. He came not to bring peace but the sword. And thousands of people would follow him wherever he went. If you were power-hungry Roman, just imagine what you might think when Christianity started getting traction. It's a new Jewish sect that's growing like crazy. It started recruiting people who aren't even Jewish, and one of its leaders calls it the true Israel. And of course, this is at a time where it was unprecedented for a wide number of people to convert to a new religion unless they were conquered and thus embracing the religion of their victors. It would certainly seem like the church had something tricky up its sleeve, like it was preparing to become the next big empire. And perhaps if you were a Christian in the early church, uh, you might have even been tempted to think the same thing. Uh, maybe some of the Roman Christians who were listening to Paul's letter read out loud for the first time were waiting to see if the apostle would make a call to arms at the end of the letter. And finally, Paul gets to politics, and, and you can imagine wondering what he'll say. Well, is he going to say that, that now is the time to rise, or, or that the time has come for justice to reign supreme, that no one can stand against so many? And they, they, they get to verse 1, and Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Of course, we, we live in a time and a place where everyone wants to be known for having a peaceful religion. And know why? It's because Christianity was a peaceful religion. Uh, and it spread so much that it changed the West's opinion on violence and religion. If you don't believe me, I'll go ahead and challenge you to find a major religion before Christianity that promotes peace over war in the West. Uh, instead, what usually happened was people would test the religion by how well they did in war. If your country won more battles, chances were that your gods were better. So even though we don't, ha or rather, even though we do have the privilege of living in a world that wants peaceful religions, uh, don't miss the fact that the sentiment begins here in the New Testament. For the original audience, this is a completely novel idea, and anyone who hadn't yet heard that the church is to be peaceful might have been wondering why Paul is saying to obey the government. Well, he answers in the next sentence. He says, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, Paul's answer is that we are to respect authority because that authority comes from God. I don't imagine that this sentence is in itself uh, controversial at all. Now, when we're in church, we expect to hear that authority and power come from God. Nobody's surprised. But what I think is really at stake is not whether we have the right Sunday school answer, uh, if someone asks us where authority comes from, I, I think it's, it's where we assume power comes from in our daily lives. Our country, in fact, is built on the belief that ultimate authority does not come from God. And when I say our country, I, I don't just mean our politicians and, and our statesmen. I mean, if you had a civics class in America, chances are you've been taught this. Uh, let me explain. In the mid-17th century, a new idea of the origin of government sprouted. It's called social contract theory. A lot of ink has been spilled about social contract theory, and dozens of different versions have been proposed. 
Uh, I'm just going to give you a simplified version of one that was most influential for the American founding. Uh, the idea goes basically like this. Once upon a time, before history books record anything happening, there was no such thing as government or even society. Uh, everyone was a nomad, though eventually people started getting married and keeping their kids around. Uh, next, families would start to accumulate things for themselves and even begin to build little houses where they could keep their things. Uh, everyone was happy, in fact, as happy as a clam at high tide, until someone realized that he didn't need to make his own things, he could just take someone else's. If someone tried to stop the theft, the burglar would entrap or kill his victim. Uh, eventually, there would be so much theft and violence that everyone got together and said, hey, uh, every time I make a new property for myself, it just gets stolen. What do we do? And they decided that everyone would give up some of his personal power to the collective whole, and if anyone started messing with someone's life, liberty, or property, the collective whole would have the authority to stop that individual. As time progressed, the collective whole would even pick specific people to wield that authority, uh, though it would still rest in the people. I don't know if you've been taught specifically this before, but you've almost certainly heard a version of it expressed. Uh, for instance, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among these life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Uh, these words, of course, are penned by Thomas Jefferson for our Declaration of Independence, and they are an acknowledgement of the version of social contract theory I have just explained. Our country was founded on the idea that government and authority come from men. And from what I can tell, the nation hasn't really rejected this idea. The reason I bring this up is because our belief about the origin of government influences our reason for obeying. Look, if authority only comes from us and is merely loaned out to our rulers, then who's really in charge? We are. But if we're in charge, whom do we admire, whom do we rejoice in, and whom do we give glory to? Well, to ourselves. But if authority ultimately comes from God and is merely loaned to our rulers, then who's really in charge? God. And if God's in charge, we admire him, we rejoice in him, and we give glory to him. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering uh, how that works in a country that elects its leaders. Uh, maybe social contract theory is wrong, you'll say, but that's how our government is designed, so how could it be that rulers don't get their power from the people? The answer is long and complicated, so I'm going to offer an oversimplified version instead. You're welcome. Yeah, I saw some of your faces there, oh no. Uh, what we need to understand is the difference between the means by which something happens and the cause of it happening. Uh, so take Alexander the Great. Uh, by what means did he become king over the Middle East? It was a brilliant strategy, unwavering discipline, and lots of soldiers. But who caused him to become king over the Middle East? It was God. Same basic idea with elected rulers. They, they get their office by means of election, but God is the one who causes them to have authority. Uh, to be perfectly honest, while I was writing this point of the sermon, I began to feel dismayed and started questioning whether this topic was really the best way to spend our time. I mean, we, we have the answers to some of life's biggest questions in this book, and here I am explaining why social contract theory isn't true. 
and I began to wonder whether we really even think about glory that much when it comes to government. But I could only think this for a few seconds because almost as soon as I began to question it, uh, I was put in my place and reminded of the connection between God's glory and the nations throughout the Bible. I was corrected in my error, and, and I hope you don't mind, that I, I'm going to take a few minutes and give you the broader biblical context of why this is so important so that you are not tempted like I was. Uh, because what's at stake here is not what we'll say on the slight chance uh, that someone comes up to you and says, how do you think the government began? And said, it's important that we understand God's plan throughout redemptive history to make his name glorious among the nations. So here's just a very brief survey of the wider context. Uh, when Israel was not yet a country, but instead a people enslaved by the Egyptians, God revealed himself and says to the Hebrews in Exodus 6.6, 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Uh, then again, God begins his work of redemption so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that they may know that there is no one like the Lord. Then in nine, uh, this is Exodus 9.16, God says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I erase you up to show you my power. And here's where it gets exciting because God is going to say why it is that he established Pharaoh's power. He said, for this purpose I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so it was that only a generation later, when the people of, of Jericho heard that Israel was coming, they were terrified, for they had heard of the Lord and what he did in Egypt. Of course, God didn't stop then. Uh, hundreds of years later, uh, Israel would send and ask the prophet Samuel to intercede, and they are told, uh, the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. In Psalm 23, which some of you likely memorized at some point, uh, David says, God restores his soul and leads him in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Through Isaiah, God says to the land of Cush, at that time tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people dark, tall, and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land people fear near and far. So the tribute will be brought uh, to... Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. You catch that? The, the land of tall, fearsome, mighty people will pay tribute to God in the place where he has set his name. Again, God tells his people through the prophet Malachi, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And don't think that this is just for the Old Testament. Uh, what's the first petition? Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing we're to ask of God, according to Jesus, is that God's name be recognized as holy and that it would be praised. And this is not for small pockets of believers, but for every nation. For Paul tells the church of Philippi, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And John tells us from his vision in Revelation 7, uh, verses 9 and 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could remember, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So I want you to understand that the glory that comes from a nation is not something that is only tangentially related to God. And oh, how people want to make glory for their own name. It was the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who was not a Christian, who claimed that up until Christianity, everyone longed to have a great and powerful country because they had no hope of eternal life. The closest they could come to living forever was to establish a great name for themselves and for their country so that that name might live forever. Our last president may have trademarked the phrase, but the idea of making your country great, of being such a marvelous country that others honor it and respect it, this idea does not belong to a party, it does not belong to a country, it does not belong to an era. It is a human tendency. And you can see this on, on every level. Now, people don't only want to have the best country, we want to have the best state, the best basketball team, the best company, uh, the best boss, and be on the best projects. It's not wrong to want the best, but we ought to be careful about where we want the glory to go. Because once we have something that's the best, we tend to think that we are the cause. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time was the most powerful man in the world, once looked out at his kingdom and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while he's saying this, God effectively turned the king into an animal. He, he lost his reason. His hair grew like eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. Men shunned him, and he went around eating grass. Eventually, God restored him, and immediately, what does he do? The king begins to praise God, saying, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So look, the church needs to be properly aware of why it is called to be subject to governing authorities. It is not to bring glory to one's own country, it is to bring glory to God. Thus, Paul says in verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It seems very clear to me when we respect authority, it does not have to be because we approve of the person, because we approve of the policies, or even because we approve of electing our officials. We obey because we are obeying what God has established. A man's authority is apparently so directly tied to God's will that to resist man's authority is to resist God's, so much so that it deserves punishment. So, when you hear the people say that we made authority for ourselves, 
or that it only rests in the people, I want warning signs to go off in your mind. No, in these times, remember these first two verses. Authority only comes from and rests in God. Let's continue now to the second section, where Paul discusses the practical purposes of government. Uh, If you will, look with me now in verse 3. Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. What Paul's saying is rather straightforward. Uh, You don't need to be afraid of the government. I think a lot of people share the same sentiment as Ronald Reagan when he said the nine most feared words to the American people are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, but what does Paul mean? Yeah, it's good to laugh now. What does Paul mean? If, if, if you don't want to be afraid of the one who's in authority, then be a good citizen. Because God raises up authorities for your good. When should you be afraid of the government? Well, Paul answers in the next sentence. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, that is, uh, the ruler, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who, is, uh, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. If you were here last Sunday, you may recall that I said that not repaying evil for evil doesn't mean not filing a police report if you've been wronged. No. God uses the government to exact earthly justice. So we, we must hold these two ideas in tension. We must never let, uh, sorry, we must never go out looking uh, for vengeance. Uh, we should always seek to love our enemy and overcome evil with good. But at the same time, God has instituted government officials, in our case, police, prosecutors, judges, uh, to keep wicked men in check. Now comes the inevitable question, what about when the governments are themselves full of wicked men? Are we still to obey? Well, Paul answers, I think, in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Even if the ruler is wicked and we cannot escape wrath, we are to remain in subjection. Why? According to Paul, it is for the sake of conscience. That is, even if we do not get any earthly good out of being subject, we are still doing good. Uh, This principle, I think, prompts two questions for the church. First, how can we take comfort in doing good? Uh, second, what do we do if we are ordered to disobey God? Let's just take these one at a time. So, if a government is wicked, how is it that the church can take comfort in doing good? I, I have two answers. Yeah, number one, we do not know that a wicked ruler will not still be glad to have God-fearing subjects. Uh, I, I have in mind Joseph and Daniel. Both of them have very similar stories. Uh, They were both young Jewish men who became slaves in a pagan country, were surrounded by temptation, and yet served the Lord. And God blessed all that they did. They were both punished for doing nothing wrong by being thrown in a pit, and they both gained the favor of a king by interpreting his dreams. And something I especially admire about both men is how adamant they were about serving God while talking to a king who believed that he literally was God. Uh, Both are asked by uh, their king if they can interpret dreams. The first recorded words Joseph ever says to Pharaoh are, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's a pretty bold thing to say to a man who thinks he's God. Uh, um, 
Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar is not so different. He says, uh, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Same thing. Daniel is before a man who would literally build an idol of himself and tells him that the God of Israel is the only one who can help him. What, what happens to Joseph and Daniel? Are they promptly executed? Well, no, they, they talk further about God's plan for the world, and then they're promoted to prime minister. Uh, of course, I, I, I don't want you to take from this that we should expect that if we, have a wicked, that if we have a wicked ruler, the office of prime minister is ours for the taking. Uh, but I think we should expect that God will do what he wants, even if it seems improbable. And we know that God wants his church to obey civil authorities. And if he wants to protect his people from earthly harm, even while they serve a wicked ruler, we cannot doubt that he is capable. We should never take comfort in the fact... We should take comfort. We should take comfort in the fact that as all authority is from God, we need never fear that the wicked are truly in control. But that doesn't mean that God will always grant his favor in the sight of evil rulers, which brings me to my second answer for this question. The church can take comfort in doing good under a wicked ruler because that is what Christ did. Jesus underwent sham trials. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was spit upon. Jesus was flogged all by the ruling powers. And then Jesus was crucified. And he didn't have to. Only one innocent man has ever been afflicted by the government, and it was Jesus Christ. Yet, like a sheep to the shears, he made no noise. In fact, during this time, Pilate would ask him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? This, I think, would probably get most people talking. Most people would cower at this sort of authority. But how did Jesus respond? He says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. This should call back uh, our minds to what Pastor Jerry preached a few weeks ago in Luke 12, 4, when Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. And you ask, how is this my comforting answer, right? You just elevated the, the whole fear thing. But uh, don't you see that, that because Jesus died and took the punishment of sins on himself, we need not be afraid. Look, if, if you ever live under a wicked ruler, you have no need to fear because what's the worst he could do? Huh? Kill you? E even the most powerful ruler in all the world, even the man of lawlessness, should we ever live to see his day, even he cannot change the fact that your soul belongs to God. Remember Romans 8.33 and follow me. Uh, this is on page 9.45. If you want to uh, join along, it's just about two pages from where we are in the text. Again, uh, Romans 8, starting in verse... Did I say 33? I did say 33. Verse 33. Uh, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is his church. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The only people who need to fear are those who do not see Jesus as their true authority. If that sounds like you, I am not trying to scare you into the church. But it would be utterly unkind to ignore you. I just want to say, if, if you would like to know more, please come talk to an elder or to a pastor or to myself after the service. Now, the second question that can be asked about wicked rulers is this. What if our rulers order us to disobey God? This, fortunately, has not been a large issue in our country. I, I, I do recognize that we're not headed in the best trajectory, uh, but don't mistake the coming application for any sort of prediction on my part for our country. I, I do not know the future. Uh, perhaps my perceptions are off. Perhaps we'll have a revival. Uh, perhaps Jesus will come back before the day is over. I know which one I wish would happen. Uh, but I don't know what will happen. However, if... If you are ever told by an authority to disobey the commands of God, let's be absolutely clear, you are not to disobey God. If you're asked to sign a statement that says you deny God or approve of what he condemns, don't sign it. If corporate worship is outlawed where you are, still gather with the local church. If you're in a country where it's simply illegal to be a Christian, then continue in the faith. I desperately hope that we will never face those troubles in this land but even if we don't, who knows whether God might call some of you to share his gospel in a different country. So stay true to God's word. But some of you may be thinking, how can we both stay true to God's word and resist authority if God's word tells us not to resist authority? All we need to do is look back at the text to understand the channel of authority. We see from verse 1 that we should obey earthly rulers because their authority comes from God. And now we must ask ourselves this crucial question, who has the authority to command us to disobey God? Well, no one. Not even God has that authority. For if God commanded us to disobey his commands, uh, it would be a logical impossibility. For if we obey the command, we would be breaking it. And if we ignore that command, we would be following it. Perhaps a better way of putting it is this. The authority to command you to disobey God does not exist. It's like a square circle. You can throw the words together, but the thing itself is impossible. Right now, somebody's trying to imagine a square circle. You can't do it, can you? Yeah. So, if you're ever in a situation where, where any ruler commands you to disobey God, they don't have that authority, because there is no authority to do that. And, and perhaps, if you ever express this, uh, an, an unbeliever will tell you that, well, he can conceive of such authority, so you're just being unreasonable. But what he has in mind is not God, but an idea which he has called God. 
It would be like saying that I can conceive of a square circle so long as I concede that squares need not have right angles. Let's remember at this point that, that if we ever think that God can do one thing and the Bible says something different, it's not that we have a disagreement with the Bible, it's that we have in mind a completely different God. Now to section three, showing honor. So remember that the Paul didn't just take the tangent that we did. He, he's just said in verse five that we are to obey rulers even if just for the sake of conscience. Now he'll elaborate. In verse six, Paul says, for because of this, that is because of conscience, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Though this is straightforward, I'm aware uh, that we may be tempted to spot a loophole. Uh, perhaps it has occurred to someone here that if we are to pay taxes because of our conscience, then if we don't feel bad withholding our money, it's perfectly acceptable not to pay. Uh, I discovered just yesterday, actually, that since the Civil War, our government has had a gift fund called the Conscience Fund. Uh, this is where people send money to the government when they feel they've been dishonest with their money. Uh, one returned was worth three cents because someone used a stamp. Uh, another man would send $40,000. One woman elected to mail in some quilts to cover her debt. And apparently they're still there. Uh, one individual wrote a check for $1,000 with a letter saying, I couldn't sleep, so here's the money that I withheld. If I still can't sleep tomorrow, I'll send the balance. Uh, this isn't what Paul's talking about when he says pay taxes for the sake of conscience. Right, let's, let's be clear on what it means to do something for the sake of conscience. Okay. Conscience refers to your knowledge of good and evil. You, you can just look at the English word. Con means with, science means knowledge. So con-science means with knowledge. This idea is that since you know that it is good to pay taxes, because you know you are paying them to the ministers of God, then that is a reason for you to pay your taxes. And I'm not going to dwell on taxes for, for too much longer, but I want to take a little bit of time to flesh out this idea that we are to obey the law even if we do not like it. This course is under the assumption that you don't like paying taxes. If you like paying taxes, you can apply this anyway, just not to taxes. I once had a conversation with a Christian who claimed that if government issued too many taxes, we would be justified in rebelling against that government. This idea is perhaps palatable to some of you. We have, of course, been raised in a country built from rebellion. Uh, so please understand the word of God. You do not have license to disobey a law simply because you do not like it. This applies to taxes. It applies to COVID protocols. It applies to election laws. Really, it applies to any law that is not evil, but you just don't happen to like. I, I don't know that this is applicable to anyone here, but I am aware that cross-partisan people have a tendency towards self-glorification and violence. So I, I want to warn you, if you are ever in a conversation with other Christians that turns toward politics and violent disobedience is spoken of approvingly, do not be fooled. That is not pleasing to God. Finally, verse 7. Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And here, Paul extends the principle of paying taxes uh, to giving rulers what we owe them in general. And we're, we've already covered taxes and revenue, but uh, I think we need to see are these last two lines. Pay respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. 
The vision for the church is not merely that we would be subject to the government. It is that we would be showing due honor to our rulers. And it seems that the church tends to land on two extremes of this rule. The first extreme is to completely reject this command. We constantly see men and women whom God has raised up and placed in authority over us. And if we don't particularly like the person or their policies, we make fun of them. Uh, for instance, just this week, Judge Jackson, a Supreme Court nominee, has been going through the confirmation hearing with the U.S. Senate. Uh, I've seen multiple videos of this hearing cut in such a way as to portray either the senator or the judge as completely ridiculous. Uh, once I even saw the same discussion two separate times, and each was presented in a way to make a different person look like the buffoon. This probably isn't surprising to anyone. Uh, you've probably seen more of these than I have, but our, our country is constantly doing this. We're, we're always making fun of, of the political figure we do not like, often to the point that we don't even know what they're doing or who, or who they are, for, for we already know that we don't like them. All you need to do is take a drive around town, and you'll find signs berating the governor of Illinois and the president of the United States. Uh, to make matters worse, our utter disrespect for our rulers is quickly transferred to their supporters. I, I tried to stay generally informed of what different groups think of each other, and I found overwhelmingly that arguments have been traded in for insults. Uh, rather than addressing others' beliefs, many simply attack the belief holder. I see constant, unwarranted bashing of those we disagree with. And the problem here is not merely that this is happening in our country, it's that Christians are joining in. There's a lot of disagreement about how involved with politics the church should be, but I, I, I think this much is clear from what we just read. Christians are to pay due honor and respect to their rulers. There's no excuse for being swept up in a political frenzy that revels in mockery. Parents, watch how you talk about politics in front of your kids. If your manner is insulting, they'll pick that up from you. Everyone, watch how you talk about our rulers with peers. Our politicians are ministers of God, and when we respect them, we respect God. The, the uh, Puritan theologian Richard Sibbs has said, And so great weakness of man's nature, and especially in this crazy age of the world, we ought to take in good part any moderate happiness we enjoy by government, and not be altogether as a nail in the wood exasperating things by misconstruction. The other extreme is, rather than not bestowing any honor, bestowing more honor than is due to our governing authorities. Uh, some Christians are so committed to their political perspective that they will even make it a test of salvation. Uh, last election cycle, for instance, the belief was expressed to me uh, by a friend that if one cannot vote for the candidate they were voting for, one cannot be a good Christian. Uh, before I go on, let me just be very clear on the matter. Uh, Jesus does not belong to the same political party as you. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not a Libertarian. He, he's not even an American. Yeah, so, oh, he's not. He's <laughs> 2000, or I guess about 1500 years before America became a country. Uh, of course, uh, sometimes, this is our problem, right? Our, our broader focus is not on partisan politics, but it's just on being happy that we're Americans. It's not necessarily bad, but, uh, but sometimes we do this to the point that we are tempted to bestow undue honor on our country. Uh, some of you may wonder why we don't fly the American flag here and don't celebrate American holidays during our services. But it's because we are, as the author of Hebrews tells us, citizens of a better country. That is a heavenly one. For God has prepared a city for his saints. And we're here on earth, and specifically in the United States, 
but we belong somewhere else. Perhaps you remember from last week, uh, Kurt Fisher said during communion that the church building is a sort of embassy. When we are gathered together, we are not in the new city, but we are all citizens of it, and we follow its laws and its customs. And so we do not spend our time or our resources celebrating a different country. Uh, what would you see, for instance, if you walked into the English embassy? You probably see, I, I, this is pure speculation, I've never been in one, but probably tea, uh, probably a football game on the telly, and the Union Jack flying high. We would probably not see a hot dog eating contest, uh, March Madness, or the Stars and Stripes. It's the same idea with the church. We, we may live in American, on American soil, but, but we truly belong to another country. It's not wrong to be proud of your country or to celebrate national holidays. The, the trouble comes when we become so infatuated with our country that we lose our focus on God. I want you now to consider the implications of the church leaning toward either of these extremes with regard to showing honor, either hating the government or being tempted to worship it. Because what we don't often realize is that our countrymen are watching us and getting their idea of Christianity from us. So just ask yourself this. Based on your observation of how the church in America at, at large talks about politics, do you get the clear impression that what's most important is that God's name be seen as glorious in the nation? Now, now forget about the American church. Just think about Christ first. When political topics pop up every now and then, do the conversations here make it clear that the glory of God among the nations is a priority? What about when Christ first isn't a symbol on a Sunday morning? Uh, what about just on every other day of the week when you're sent out as a representative member of the church and of the kingdom of God? How apparent is it to those you interact with that the praise of God's glorious name is foremost in your heart? If you're incredibly invested in politics, uh, maybe you need to take a step back and ask yourself why you care so much. Is it because you long for God's glory, or is it because you long for your own glory and assume that God's plan coincides with yours? If you lean toward the opposite direction, and you just, you, you do not care about government one bit, maybe you should. Maybe you need to start asking yourself whether your political apathy is driving you to long with the praise of God's name among the nations. You don't need to become invested in politics, but you do need to become invested in the kingdom of God, such that when something government-related pops up in conversation, you can easily see the route to praising God. And I'm just going to give you three quick examples, and um, three types of occasions in which we could do this. Uh, number one, when a common political event happens. Uh, right now, it's tax season. Uh, I, I, I do not like doing taxes. Mine aren't even complicated. I just don't like it. Uh, what if, when someone mentions filing a tax report, our minds don't just turn to thoughts of money? What if they turn to the praise of God, for we would be suddenly reminded that we only pay taxes because God is in control? Example number two. What if, when something big is happening and the federal government, like a new Supreme Court nomination, we automatically turn to praise because we see that the Supreme Court is just a tiny fraction of the power to execute justice that God possesses? Number three, what if when, when something political happens in the international scale, such as Russia and Ukraine, uh, we automatically think about how much the name of God will outstrip the name of Putin when it comes to international glory? 
Of course, it should not be limited to our own thoughts. Consider how this could change your conversations. What if whenever any authority, whether local, national, or international is mentioned, we wouldn't think, boy, I wish I was in control because I wouldn't be making such mistakes. Uh, we wouldn't be saying, can, can you believe this? Or uh, can you get a load of that? What if we broke free from this worldly idea that pride and arrogance and selfishness and cynicism are cool, that they're, that they're somehow fitting for God's people? What if God's Spirit would give us the boldness so that next time politics comes up, we would actually say out loud, Blessed be the name of the Lord! For He is so loving and so powerful that He has not left us in this state of anarchy. What I'm asking for, in other words, is for the very attitude of the church toward government to change. And maybe you think that this just sounds crazy. You say, Don't talk like that. Well, of course they don't. They don't know God. Remember what Paul told the local church from last week? Do not be slothful in zeal. That means a lot of things, but I, I think it includes changing our speech to be explicitly God-glorifying, even if it's about topics like government that we have somehow tricked ourselves into believing are secular. So be praying for yourselves, for the church, that we would grow to embrace this biblical attitude toward government. Pray that the name of God will be glorified when his church respects the authority that he has given to man, and that we would rejoice in that glory. And while everyone else may be running around, fretting about politics and what might happen, rejoice because we don't need to worry, for our king is coming back. And while all the rulers of the age look for how to bring glory to themselves and their countries, we need not be in distress because we already know that we shall bring glory to the name of God even by serving his earthly servants. For all power and all dominion and all authority and all creation is for Christ, through Christ, and to Christ. And to him belongs glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear Father, thank you so much for giving us a chance to, to get a glimpse of your glory, I ask that you would work in, in all of our hearts. And that when we think of your rulers, um, we would not think selfish thoughts. Uh, we would not be tempted to, to center things around ourselves or, um, or our political communities, but instead that, that we would see everything, including our rulers, in light of your glory. Father, I ask that, that overall, that, that anything we cast eyes on, that you would train us to automatically see your riches in that, and that we would praise your name for it. Um, but for now, I ask that this happen when we think about, about the rulers that you have placed over us. And Father, we, we thank you that you've been so gracious as to give us these rulers. Um, we, we thank you that you've been so gracious as to give us the, this text to see that your glory can be seen through this ministry to us. And we ask that your name will be made great, not only in this nation, but in all the earth. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.